Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Who is Kim Jong-un? It's Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Anna Fifield is the Washington Post's Beijing Bureau Chief. Anna has um, written for a number of publications through the years um, and, and all got, over the world. And been able to do something I'm envious of is regularly travel to North Korea and Pyongyang and see what it's like over there. Right. Right, and uh, the book is The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Anna Fifield joins us now. Anna, this is a real pleasure. How are you? I'm great, thank you. It's a pleasure for me, too. Well, let me uh, share this with you, that I began prepping for this interview a couple of days ago, and my normal practice would be to jump here and there in the book, skim, look at chapter headings, uh, that sort of thing. I did a miserable job at it because I started at the beginning and I just couldn't stop. Okay. It, it really is compelling and fascinating and, and and what a subject. If you don't mind, can we start in, in talking about Kim Jong-un by talking about the Kim dynasty in general and and how, you know, the, the descriptions of um, all of the Kims really have been that of God's. Of, of transcendent being sent from above when the beginning of the Kim regime was actually very, very grubby, even by political standards. Yeah, that's right. So North Korea was created uh, when some Americans drew a line across the Korean peninsula at the end of the Second World War in 1945. Uh, and they decided to, you know, they would take control of the South, back the South, and the Soviet Union back to the North. And they installed as the leader there Kim Il-sung, who was a, you know, supposedly, he says he was a revolutionary anti-Japanese fighter. 
Uh, he was somebody that the Soviets even had some misgivings about at that time, but he did become the leader of North Korea. And he quickly, like, set about, you know, out personality culting even Stalin and Mao Zedong in China. Uh, he created this whole system around him as if he was some kind of divine figure um, chosen to be the leader of North Korea. He created this personality cult where everybody is forced to um, adore him all the time. And now he's he passed that down to his son, Kim Jong-il, who was the second generation leader of North Korea, making North Korea the world's first communist dynasty. And now he passed it on to Kim Jong-un, the third generation. But they all claim their legitimacy by tracing their line back to this holy mountain in the north of North Korea called Mount Pektu. So, so Grandpa invented this this uh, government style um, that they that they still use now. Do you have any idea why he went with that? I mean, North Korea started as a Soviet client state, so so much of what they adopted uh, came from the Soviet Union in terms of the Communist Party apparatus. Well, was he a communist? Yeah, he was a communist. He's a true blue communist. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, he, he believed yeah, it. he was a communist at the beginning. There, he kind of blended communism with this North Korean nationalism and made North Koreans out to be better than all the other communists. But yeah, he he adhered to communism. But the thing is that his family has its background in Christianity. His grandfather was a Protestant minister. Uh, North Korea, you know, Pyongyang used to be called the Jerusalem of the East. So there had been this tradition of Christianity in this part of the world. But, uh, the, you know, Kim family wiped that out, made that illegal, and adopted many of the kind of stories of Christianity and bent them for their own purposes. So, for example, Kim Il-sung when uh, they wrote the propaganda around his son, they said that he was born on this mountain and a bright star shone in the sky at night. So very, mm-hmm. you know, similar to the Jesus wow. story. Yeah. Well, so and I, we'll, we'll go through these as we go along, I imagine. But him, the original grandfather started, rational actor, sane person? Yeah, yeah, he was a rational actor because he proceeded very much according to a plan here where he, you know, um, did all the things he needed to do to stay in power. And that included you know, bolstering the military, creating a strong communist party, placating Stalin and Mao as much as he needed to. But also, yes, yeah, stealing from them um, many parts of the system, many parts of the personality cult. So, yeah, he acted in a very rational way if you're a totalitarian dictator who wants to stay in power. And how long did Kim Il-sung stay in charge? Well, he took over in 1948, and he died in 1994. Wow. So almost 50 years he was the leader of North Korea. His son ran it for 17 years, and Kim Jong-un's now been in power for seven and a half. So altogether, North Korea has now existed for longer than the Soviet Union. Which I read and thought, you know, if I was a cartoon rabbit, I'd have gone, because I was astounded by that. But that's true. Let's let's take a moment on Kim Jong-il, the the second uh, in line, partly because I'm an avid golfer and he made 18 consecutive holes in one, which is really an astounding achievement. Um, On his first game of golf as well, he played a whole <gasps> First time he ever played. Right. I've played with beginners. That's very impressive. I can see why you'd never play again. Boring. Which, <laughs> which gets us to an aspect of, um, of the society, and this is a rather jarring turn from hilarious to, to fairly sickening, but those incredible claims of, of godliness 
Those exist for a couple of different reasons. Uh, am I correct? One of them being you don't dare dispute it no matter how ridiculous it is. Yep. That's right. I mean, the the family claims the right to lead by saying that they are so special. They can do all these superhuman feats, and North Korea is so lucky to have them. But increasingly, yeah, North Koreans know that this is all made-up fantasy, impossible kind of stuff. But because the police state is so severe and so strict and the punishment is just unfathomable that people can't speak up and criticize the regime, you know, their lives literally depend on it. So what else should we know about uh, Kim Jong-un's son? Or I'm sorry, his father, uh, Kim Jong-il. I mean, he was a real kind of oddball. I mean, he was very introverted, uh, very reclusive. In 17 years in power, he spoke in public only once. Uh, and that was one single sentence that he uttered at a rally. Uh, so he was somebody who did not appear to enjoy the job uh, at all, whereas Kim Jong-un is so different from that. He's very much like his grandfather. I mean, part of that is by design, like Kim Jong-un's haircut and his clothes and his glasses and his gravelly voice. All of that is copied from his grandfather. He looks a lot like his grandfather. Uh, and he does that as well to say, look, I am a reincarnation of this great founder of our state. Um, so, but Kim Jong-un is also much more like his grandfather in personality. He's, you know, is much more outgoing. He seems to enjoy uh, interacting with people, even though they're forced to <laughs> enjoy interacting with him. So, so the middle Kim, Kim Jong-il, he was very much the aberration in this system. And I mean, it is a surprise. Was he sane and or a rational actor? Yeah, I mean, he still was because, I mean, the proof of that is that he managed to stay in power. I mean, none of these people are good people or the kind of people you would want to live under uh, at all. But, yeah, they have acted in a way that is very rational. Like if he was a madman and going off, you know, killing too many people or not killing enough people or whatever, you know, that's the equation that they're making. He wouldn't have been able to do it. So, yeah, all of them are very brutal and ruthless, what, but they're not nutcases. At, at what point did the population start starving and what's the theory behind that? I mean, what, what's the upside? I mean, there's no upside to the people of North Korea, that's for sure. Or even to, so, the, to, the, to, to the leadership, having your population starving to death. What, what, what's the goal there? Yeah, no, the leadership doesn't care about the population. I mean, they've proven that time and time again. The leadership only cares about the elites. They're the people who keep them in power. Um, but the starvation that happened in the 1990s, North Korea suffered this really devastating famine. I mean, partly it was because of natural, uh, there was a drought and there was torrential rain, but all of this was able to have an impact because of the mismanagement. North Korea had, you know, the agriculture sector was totally broken. Like the leaders had mismanaged North Korea for so many decades that when this drought and this uh, flood hit, it wiped out all of the crops. And as many as 2 million people starved to death during that period. And those who survived, you know, emerged as skeletons from this. So there's a lot of tales from children at the time. You know, children would fight over a single kernel of corn that they found in a cow pat uh, over who got to eat this. They were so desperately hungry. So it's astounding. I mean, the regime came as close as ever to collapse during that time, but they did manage to, to make it through, surprisingly. Okay, I'm just trying to make sure I understand this, because I know just from reading enough that, that Stalin and Mao, 
while they starve people, they thought they were going to bring about a worker's paradise. That was their plan. It just doesn't work. So, But you're saying the Kims, they just don't care. Yeah, I mean, they, they were not, yeah, they did not care at that time. This would this famine did not happen as part of any, like the Great Leap Forward in China was supposed to be this uh, upgrading of the agriculture of the farming sector. So, I mean, yes, it was very misguided. But North Korea, no, they weren't even trying to help the people. Wow. They don't, they don't care. They were just horrible at running an economy. Yeah, they really were. So listen, and and, uh, before we get really into Kim Jong-un, who's obviously the, the subject of the book, was that I've been reading we've been reading your stuff from the Korean Peninsula for quite a while now, but I hadn't realized that North Korea was such a passion of yours and how much of your adult life has been spent studying and trying to understand the system and talking to people. Um, when did when did you really become intensely interested in it? Yeah, well, it went, started in 2004 when I was sent to Seoul by the Financial Times, which is the paper I used to work for back then. Um, and I was sent to Korea, and I had unusual luck in getting into North Korea. Mainly, you know, I'm from New Zealand, as you can tell by my funny accent, uh, and I worked for a British paper, so it wasn't as difficult for me as it was for an American at that time. And it just became this fascination because it's such a puzzle. Like, how has this regime managed to survive all this time? Time despite all the changing outside world and how have the people, you know, how do they tolerate it? Why do they not rise up and overthrow this regime? You know, there's so many questions and so few answers. And I think that's why it's kept me interested all these years. Well, and there it is side by side or top and bottom uh, with uh, certainly in the last 30, 40 years, one of the most technologically advanced modern countries in the world, South Korea. Yeah, you could hardly hope for a better case study. But, you know, one country split in two. The other, one is this bustling, fast-placed, yeah, high-tech economy, and the other is like, yeah, stuck in the Victorian era in many respects. So I realize this is silly, but I was thinking about this conversation overnight, and um, I'm picturing the scenes from The Lion King, the great uh, Disney kids <laughs> movie, where a lot of the interaction between uh, the dad and the, the prince is dad humbling the prince and letting him know you're going to be serving. You are not going to be served. I I got the idea from the book that Kim Jong-un didn't exactly have that upbringing. He did not. He had the exact opposite of that. So, I mean, he was unveiled as his father's successor on his eighth birthday, and he had this birthday party where... Uh, you know, top officials were there, uh, his aunt and his uncle were there, and a Japanese sushi chef who was working in the royal compound was also there. And so I talked to the aunt and the uncle and the sushi chef, and they described how, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un was given a little general's uniform with brass buttons and epaulettes and everything, and real generals who were at this birthday party started saluting him and bowing to him, and it was from, you know, that day onwards, it was impossible for him to to be a normal child in any respect. And he got used to giving orders, you know, far from serving. He got used to people serving him. Why Un and not his older half-brother? Yeah, this is a good question. So, I mean, it's commonly been thought that the older half-brother fell out of favor in 2001 when he was caught trying to sneak into Japan. He was trying to go to Disneyland in Tokyo and very embarrassingly got got busted at the airport. Um, but I think he had actually fallen out of favor before that. And the reason I think this is because of the influence of their mothers. 
So Kim Jong-nam, the oldest son of the third generation, his mother, you know, she moved to Moscow when the boy was three years old. She was really out of the picture. She had a kind of mental breakdown, nervous breakdown, and she was not uh, influential in the regime any longer, even though she never defected from it. Um, whereas Kim Jong-un's mother, she was really like the first lady. She was there in North Korea, very ambitious, very powerful, and she was positioning her sons to be the leaders from the get-go. So she had Kim Jong-un called the comrade general, and she made sure that they went to the west point of North Korea so they could claim to have the military credentials to lead this country. So I think it was really the mother that was a decisive factor. But, you know, Kim Jong-un has an older full brother from the same mother. Um, I think that he was chosen, even though he's the younger one, because he just had this natural aptitude and he showed some kind of innate ability to be able to do this job. So you broke the story, I guess, that young Kim's uh, brother that he uh, he assassinated at the airport was working for the FBI or the CIA. Yeah, that's right. So uh, after Kim Jong-un came into power, he kind of cut off this older brother who was living in exile. So he wasn't getting money from the regime like he used to. Uh, and so I think it was for that reason that he started becoming an informant for the CIA. Uh, also, I heard for the South Korean intelligence service, probably the Japanese as well, you know, he had this unique position where even though he had no relationship with his brother, he had a lot of uh, contact still with people at the top of the regime, and he could have provided uh, very useful intelligence to the CIA about what was going on in North Korea. You know, And the CIA would be grasping at anything they could get because the simple fact is that there is like basically no human intelligence from inside North Korea. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the brilliant comrade Kim Jong Un. If you were recommending him for a job or something, what would be your your thumbnail sketch of what kind of guy he is? Uh, I would not recommend him for any job. <laughs> but if I were, uh, I mean, the the common perception of him is that he's this cartoon character, like Doctor Evil style villain, right? He looks like he's straight out of James. Well, Bond. he looks like a doughy dope. I mean, he obviously isn't, but that's what he looks like. Yeah, that's what he looks like, right? And there has been a tendency to treat him as if he's a cartoon character. So the point I wanted to make in this book is that he is actually very, uh, he's proven to be very strategic and calculating and savvy in the way he's approached this job, the way he's approached the outside world, the way he's pursued nuclear weapons. Like everything he done, he's done has been designed to keep him in power, uh, whether it is yeah, having his uncle and his half-brother killed or it is firing off missiles that can technically hit the United States. So he's proceeded according to this plan. He's certainly succeeded in getting the United States' attention. Um, so the point I wanted to make and uh, here is that he, we should take him seriously. Like if we treat him as a joke, we're underestimating him. We're underestimating the threat that he poses to us and the outside world, but also the threat that he poses every single day to 25 million people who live in North Korea and are, you know, his victims on a daily basis. His victims, d d d but but he doesn't see it that way. So I'm I'm always most amazed by the psychology of these people, even more than the politics and all the other things you can look at. Is just how does anybody end up that way? So you're, you're discussing the birthday party in the general's outfit, and he saw his dad and his grandpa, and he is around that. But he was educated abroad. He's seen some of the world. Doesn't he develop some 
human compassion at some point? I hear these stories about people starving, and it hurts my heart. Doesn't it bother him? How does it not bother them? Yeah, I mean, apparently it doesn't bother him because he hasn't done anything about it. I mean, yeah, when he was in Switzerland, he went to school there and he learned about Nelson Mandela and about democracy and about religious tolerance and, you know, how to be a good global citizen. But he clearly wasn't listening during those lessons or they made no mark on him. I think for him, he justifies it to himself by saying, you know, this is what I need to do to stay in power. Uh, So this brutality, you know, there's 120,000 people in North Korea uh, living in these basically concentration camps, doing hard labor, almost no food. They're put there for questioning the regime. That is their only crime. Um, so he has, and he, Kim Jong-un has continued to do this, this system that he inherited from his father and grandfather. So he has shown no interest whatsoever in improving the um, kind of social climate there for the people of North Korea because all he cares about, the reason I say he doesn't care about the people of North Korea, he cares about staying in power. So if that's what he's got to do to stay in power, he is apparently willing to do it. Although he's improved the capital city based on your writing. When you when you showed up after he'd been in power for a while, you said it was just it was shocking how different it was. Yeah, it was. I mean, yes. So Pyongyang is the showcase capital where the elite live. Uh, They are the people who keep him in power. They are the 1% of North Korea. So he does care about those people because those are his supporters. Those are the people who, um, yeah, keep him in his job. So he's made sure that they get richer and happier and fatter under him. So, I mean, now they're, you know... Literally fatter? Do you mean literally fatter? Yeah, some of them, yeah. I mean, not fat. Nobody's fat in North Korea apart from him. But, you know, they look healthier. They are clearly, you know, their diet has improved. They're getting what they need. You can see it in their faces and in their figures when you go to North Korea. When not starving is the new fat. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, in, in Pyongyang, if people have money, and increasingly they do have money, they can live a relatively good life, you know, probably better than they would live if they escaped to Seoul and just went and became part of the 99%. So, I mean, some people hmm. now call Pyongyang Pyonghattan because it does have that kind of New York City kind of feel. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but it's it's to hit on this idea. Yeah, there are skyscrapers and you can do a yoga class and buy a cappuccino if you wow. have the money. That is mind-blowing. And you go out into the countryside and people are you fighting to the death over a kernel of corn. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah people yeah. have no electricity, no running water. You know, they don't even have oxen to f- plow the fields. You know, it's really so deprived outside of this Pyonghattan area. Yeah. You know, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand the mathematics of dictatorship and, and totalitarian regimes. And and I I get it. It, it sure seems like well, the the one commonality between your your dictators we've discussed um, is uh, megalomania, and I wonder whether uh, Kim Jong Un's papa, Kim Jong Il, kind of lacked that. He just realized he was he had the tiger by the tail, and he had to survive and keep the regime alive. But then it strikes me that Un is he's he's got the megalomania gene. He believes himself to be, you know, a great great man. Yeah, I mean, he does. And I was interested in this and talked to some psychologists about it. And they said there's like a kind of chemical 
impact of this. You know, like the whole the saying about power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is based on this idea that you get a little kick of dopamine in your brain every time you exercise your power. And so there could actually be a chemical reaction happening in, in his brain that encourages him to do this more and more. While we were just talking about uh, the, you know, the the him and the the privilege and the way they're living there in the capital versus the countryside, maybe instead of talking about uh, Mao and Stalin, it's better to go. You have a quote from Henry V at the beginning of your book from Shakespeare. Maybe it's better to think of like your medieval kings having the big parties in the castle, and you you get right outside of there, and and people are living like it's the year five. Yeah, I mean there is a lot of similarities yeah between the like, Shakespearean tragedies like this and yeah, the Medicis of Italy and these yeah, kind of families that were full of kleptocrats and megalomaniacs and things. Yes, there's a lot of overlap there. So listen, I know from your writing that you do have a, uh, a human concern for the people of North Korea as you've gotten to know them at least to some extent and recognize that they're human beings. Is there any reason for optimism? Are there any modernizing trends or liberalization going on at all? Yeah, there is. And, and Kim Jong-un is allowing this increasingly. Like Things have improved a lot for the elites who keep him in power. And now he's beginning to allow a little more economic opening. People are able to start their own businesses and produce things and trade and make their own money within limitations. Uh, and that's a big change in North Korea, you know, a country that's technically communist and centrally planned. Uh, but he's proceeding very carefully with this because he knows this could be dangerous. Because when you open the country up to trade, you, you know, you also comes information. And that is happening in North Korea. Now, when uh, traders bring clothes and solar panels and, you know, uh, rice in from China, they're also bringing little USB sticks or SD cards uh, full of South Korean and Chinese action movies and soap operas and things. So information is starting to flow into North Korea. And it's that that could be really dangerous for Kim Jong-un because, you know, the more people hear about the outside world, the more they realize that, yeah, he's not a brilliant comrade, genius among geniuses and they do not live in a socialist paradise. So I think he has to proceed very carefully uh, to try to balance the economic change with, you know, with, without having any political change. So I'm confused by two things you said, and I want to figure out how they match up. So if, if all three Kims, including the current guy in charge, is, is a sane, rational actor, and all they want to do is stay in power, then earlier said we need to recognize how smart and dangerous this guy is. How dangerous can he be if he's smart and rational and wants to stay in power? Because if he crosses the United States, it will be the end. Yeah, but he's made sure not to cross the United States, right? This is what I mean about being savvy about this. So, yes, he's fired a lot of missiles that could technically hit the United States, but he fired them straight up into the air, so they came straight down again. Like He's not firing them at uh, a trajectory where they could hit Guam or Hawaii or the West Coast or anywhere in the United States. Uh, so he wants to show what he's got without crossing any of those red lines because he knows that if he was to stick a nuclear warhead on the top of one of these missiles and try to fire it anywhere near the United States, that that would provoke an overwhelming American response, that the American military would go in there and just annihilate him. So he's doing enough to show that he's serious and credible and that he does have these weapons, but not so much that he, you know, 
risks, you know, a suicidal mission there. What's your take on the current iteration of U.S. North Korean uh, nuclear talks? Yeah, I mean, it's unconventional, isn't it? Like the way that the Donald Trump has acted and also the way that Kim Jong-un has acted has been very different from the way it's happened in the past. But, you know, I feel a little optimistic about this, um, partly because 30 years of doing the same thing with North Korea has not worked. It has not convinced the Kim regime to give up their nuclear weapons. So maybe it's time to try something different. You know, maybe they are right to have leader-level talks and see if they can make any kind of progress. Um, but having said that, I am not optimistic about denuclearization. Like, there's no way Kim Jong-un's going to give up his weapons. He's put so much effort and so much money into these weapons. Uh, he needs them for his security, or he feels that he needs them to defend himself against any kind of attack. So I can't see him giving those up anytime soon. But, you know, maybe he will give up something along the way. Um, maybe the two sides can set up a liaison office, because remember, there's no diplomatic relations between the two countries. It's a really big deal for them to talk at all about anything. So if they can set up an office where they can just be in regular contact and start to have a conversation, like then maybe they can make some progress further down the line. Like it, We're in the early stages. Has he ever actually fed somebody to dogs? Because like a couple of the more well-publicized uh, murders, gruesome murders that he's pulled off, the people showed up later alive. That pop star singer showed up on TV like a couple of weeks ago that he supposedly yeah, yeah, missed. Yeah, pop star singer was there in Singapore when President Trump was there and things. Yeah, there's a lot of people who you know reportedly get killed off only to show up fine and dandy a few months later. But there are also a whole lot of people who have been executed by Kim Jong-un, including the defense minister who uh, was accused of falling asleep in a meeting where when, uh, Kim Jong-un was talking. Uh, that was one of his crimes. He was blown to pieces by an anti-aircraft gun in North Korea. So there are these really horrific tales of the way people go. But um, but no, the uncle was not savaged by a hundred hungry dogs. He was uh, shot with a you know at a firing range at a normal old execution, not uh, not the hundred hungry dogs. But People expect more and more lurid tales from North Korea, I think. So when tabloid magazines make up these kind of tales, they do go viral. But I think, you know, the the reality of life in North Korea is so horrific, we don't need to make anything up. Yeah, no kidding. Well, the book is The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. I'm hoping for a uh, similar title to my biography. <laughs> Anna, Anna Fifield. Anna, cannot tell you how much we enjoyed the conversation, and I hope we can do it again. Yeah, I'm so thrilled to hear that. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. The missing piece for me in all of these studies is I don't have a hunger for power. So I don't, I, I have a hunger for sex. I have a hunger for cheeseburgers. I have a hunger for lots of things that I get, but I don't have the hunger for power. So mm. I don't understand, I, I just, it's hard for me to like uh, get an emotional understanding of why these people do the things they do. Leave it to, to stay me in power. Then, because I crave power. No, I, yeah, I, well, that was what I was bringing up when we were talking about Kim Jong-il, uh, Un's daddy who plainly did not dig the job. I mean, he dug porn. Spoke one time. And one <laughs> sentence? He was the Clarence Thomas, a Korean, a Korean di dictator. Boy, it's hot out today. That was it. Oh, but thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Owen obviously really, really grooves to the task. He really enjoys it. But how do you end up in Switzerland for a while and not watch TV and hang out with people and you think, you know, starving people is just not that nice.
I don't understand how that doesn't seep into your... You know, I, we've talked about it a little bit in terms of Hitler, his great man theory of history that... And and this is, I mean, depending, listen, I understand the how fraught this is, morally speaking, but the great men of history, whose names we know, some of them are from, like, prehistory, but we know their names, they killed a lot of people. A lot of people. And the theory among megalomaniacs is, you just can't worry about that. That is necessary to the task. Or, you know, it, it, it's often necessary. And if it becomes necessary, you just got to do it. And don't be whining about it or you're not cut out to be a great man. So one looks at it. He says, look, we've got pretty limited resources. We don't have enough to feed the hinterlands, the, the common people. There's just not enough resources. I've got to keep the elite together and supporting me, and we're great. And we will lead uh, this country into a great, uh, you know, communist, whatever it is, F. Um, and you spend all day wondering, I wonder if that guy's going to stick a knife in me. Yeah, I tell you what, that's, uh, I wish there was some way, I mean, you'd almost have to have somebody give up dictatorial power like people give up drugs and then talk about, you know, begging on the street to get in how miserable it was. I would love to hear Kim Jong-un speak at length about the calculation you have to make. I mean, for instance, our Minister of Agriculture. It was clear to me that he was taking bribes, but in just explain how that works on a day-to-day basis. How do you how do you be a dictator? That's got to be incredibly stressful work. <laughs> you would think. I mean, a lot oof. of them hang on to the job for a long time though. Yeah. How about that the Kims have been in power longer than the Soviet Union existed? How about that? How does hereditary fit in with communism? And they have to spin that a certain way. Well, yeah, that's why they combine communism with nationalism with uh, a cult of personality. You know, you, you bend the facts to fit the circumstances. But, uh, wow, what a compelling book. I can't wait to dive back into it. And will it fall in my lifetime? I'd sure like to see it because it's going to end sometime. It can't keep going forever. I was thinking that same thing because Anna, and, you know, you read it, you, you understand, she ha- she is sickened by what the Korean people oh, have to put up with the North Korean people. And, and I, I found myself wishing for her that she lives long enough to see, well, a positive outcome. I mean, if it goes gets even worse, maybe she'd be better off not seeing it. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You just you want to know, it, this can't go on. This cannot go on. And yet it has. Good stuff. The book is The Great Successor. Extra Large. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Act. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.